I've just been invited, obviously, to speak on this theme of the Spirit-filled church. And uh, uh, you'll see through the book there are a number of subjects, chapters that would come to mind as one thinks of a church filled with the Holy Spirit. So we started off by saying, come on, fan into flame the gift of God that's in you. Let's not be um, negligent. And uh, Paul even said to Timothy, his wonderful uh, young worker, he said, don't neglect the gift. And it's possible for us to have had an experience of the Spirit coming upon us and yet not live in the good of that divine deposit, the Spirit of God being upon us. So we took that session. Then we saw uh, last evening about the, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Having that awareness of a new identity that set us free from our history, our limitations, maybe our pride, uh, maybe our sin. God's given us a completely fresh start. And then says, look, don't let that grace be in vain. Take care that you're uh, pressing through in the grace of God, enjoying that new identity, free, yes, from law, free from other things, but don't let it be in vain. And then as we work, we find actually in the work, even in doing the work, we're not working to pay back the debt. We find actually, Paul says, I work harder than any of them. He's not seeing hard work as an enemy of grace. He says, I work harder than any of them. Yet not I, but even in doing the work, it's the grace of God working in him. There's an energy factor in the grace of God. There's a working within in the grace of God. So these are some of the things we've uh, been looking at this morning. I want to look at two themes. I pray God will help us to get through two themes in the morning. Um, the, th the next thing I notice, I want to bring to your attention, you'll find a chapter of it on it in the book. The early church devoted themselves, we're told, to prayer. One of the marks of this spirit-filled church was their phenomenal authority in prayer, their ability to lay hold of God's authority and see break out. If you do a, a study of the prayer meetings in the book of Acts, they're pretty exciting. You, you know, sometimes you think, oh, the prayer meeting. Uh, you know, that's the dull meeting no one goes to. Uh, well, in the book of Acts, it's not like that. Uh, the first one's the day of Pentecost. That's not a bad prayer meeting. Uh, suddenly from heaven, wow, that is quite a prayer meeting. And then you find that, uh, again, they gather because they're told, don't you dare preach anymore. You know what we did to your leader? You preach that name anymore, you're in trouble. It says they gathered and they prayed and they cried to God. And suddenly God came again. The whole building shook. They were full of power, signs and wonders. There's no prayer meeting in the, more, in, the, in, in the book of Acts that doesn't either result in action or come from action. It's never a dull routine deal. And it's, it's something that's associated with the life and activity of the community. So Peter is put into prison. And it says they spontaneously gathered to pray. And they prayed unceasingly. And, and an angel came and opened the prison door. I mean, this is power. He's set free from prison. He comes knocking on the door. Can I? It's harder to get into the prayer meeting than it was to get out of prison. And the Spirit of God is just working through them. Then in Acts 13, we see these guys praying and fasting. The Spirit says, separate me, Saul and Barnabas, for this work. And so when the church prays in the book of Acts, things start happening. And I want us to encourage us to see one of the marks of a Spirit-filled church. In Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to, among other things, prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, of course, they'd lived alongside Jesus, 
So they had that model before them. They had his incredible example. And so they've been close to a man of prayer. You say, I'd love to be like Jesus. Well, he prayed a lot. Want to be like Jesus? He prayed a lot. If we want to be a spirit-filled church, this early church was full of prayer. Let's just ask God to bless us as we get into this study. Father, we're so delighted to be in your presence. Thank you for this beautiful time of worship. Lord, fighting for a glimpse of your glory. Fighting to behold your wonder. Lord, we're so privileged that we can come into this room this morning, leave aside all the trivia, and meet with God. And you meet with us. Father, we feel so amazed at your kindness. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you please really come and rest upon us? Would you affect our lives through your truth? Bless us as a people through your word. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Arthur Wallace, a great uh, preacher, writer, said this, Any claim to a baptism in the Spirit which leaves our prayer lives unaffected must at best be a superficial work. Any coming upon of the Spirit is going to affect our prayer lives. That's what he's saying. If it hasn't, well, he's saying it's a superficial thing because the coming on the Holy Spirit upon us is going to affect us in terms of prayer, both individually and corporately. That's the mark of this early church, that they were a power to be reckoned with in prayer. And individually, that's what God wants for us because when we gather corporate, yeah, it's the gathering of those who themselves are giving themselves to prayer. And I think for many of us, when we think of prayer, even the, uh, James is writing. I love the Amplified Translation. It says in James 5.16, talking about uh, Elijah. And it says actually in the NIV, Elijah was a man just like us. And if ever there was a guy who looked not just like us, it's Elijah. I mean, Elijah, it's like he came from nowhere, isn't it? Suddenly, the introduction to Elijah, you get other characters in the Bible, you know about their birth and their parents and their upbringing. Elijah just says, now Elijah. It's like, where did he come from? Now Elijah. And then he doesn't even die. He gets taken up into heaven. You think, whoa, there it goes. <laughs> Elijah was a man just like us? Come on. But the Bible insists on that. Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed. And when he prayed, the heavens closed. And then he prayed again. And the heavens opened. So James is want to just say, look, prayer is so key. And comes to Elijah. He says, as I said in the Amplified Translation, it says, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. That's one of the first verses from the Amplified I got into my heart decades ago. I thought, wow, what a phrase. What a, what a tremendous cluster of phrases. Dynamic in its working. Power available uh, as he prayed. And so I want to just look at uh, Elijah just as a model. I'm not going to go there in great detail. I'm not going to spend time even reading a passage. But just to say, here's a, when James is saying, now come on guys, prayer is such a vital key. Prayer's got enormous power in its working. I often quote that when I'm praying, Lord, you said, my prayer's got great power in it. The fervent prayer of a righteous man has power in it. I'm looking to you, Lord, because you said there's power in this. And so we bring that to God in prayer. And Elijah was 
such a guy. So let's just see his style. We know that he prayed and fire fell from heaven. And uh, there's an absolute uh, vindication of his stance against the prophets of Baal who don't answer prayer. And that's the mark of the distinction between the true God and false gods. He answers prayer. He responds to his people. He acts. And uh, we need to know a God who acts. And he acts as we pray. Uh, and, and then suddenly there's a kind of breakout of the vindication of Elijah. The thing that strikes me is then says, Elijah left the crowd and went up into the top of Carmel. And it says he put his face between his knees and he began to pray for the rain. Because we always associate Elijah with a kind of revival ministry and the whole concept of rain, let, let it rain, let the rain come. Again, it's a kind of language we associate with the coming of God, the coming of revival, the coming of the presence of God. So we love Elijah. We love the, the fact that he laid hold of God. So let's just see some quick things from this. First of all, although there was tremendous excitement, Elijah withdrew from the euphoria to be alone with God. There must have been terrific temptation just to go with the crowd, just to enjoy the excitement of vindication. But he withdrew, and in that he was just like Jesus. That Jesus was given to prayer. In his life, that was his style. He gave himself to prayer. He spent time in prayer. He withdrew. He didn't let other people set his agenda. He didn't let success, he didn't let crowds set his agenda. He was diligent to make sure he got alone with his father. Jesus taught that, and Jesus modeled that. He got 12 guys round him. He said he chose 12 to be with him, because these guys are going to be foundational to the church. They're, these are the apostolic guys. They're going to set the DNA, and they're close to him, and they see this, this wonderful person whose identity gets clearer and clearer as they go through the Gospels. And they notice this feature. He constantly withdrawing to be alone with his Father. And Jesus taught it, and Jesus did it. And he said things like this. When you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and speak to your Father in secret. That's a simple instruction. There should be a place you go to. Maybe a different place, different times. But in our experience, there's a, a withdrawing, a coming alone to be with God. Now, we'll talk also about the whole church coming together. But I want to just go to the individual first because that's the way it is for us. We live as individuals. And Jesus said, now, you need to go and shut the door. And he, he says that in contrast to the Pharisees who are demonstrating their religiousness by their public praying. And he said, no, no, you withdraw and be with your father. And of course, he taught that so much to the apostles that when the apostles saw the growth of the church and they suddenly saw th literally thousands being saved, and then they saw the problems associated with the care of the poor, the poor widows, some tension between the Hebrews and the Greeks, they quickly appointed men full of the Holy Spirit to look after that. But they said, we must give ourselves to prayer. Absolute priority. They had been with Jesus. They knew the score. You do that. That must be done. It's not like, who cares about it? No, no, we, that's, that's the kingdom of God. We want men full of the Spirit to handle that. But we must give ourselves to prayer. Is that what we could write over this church? We must give ourselves 
to prayer. That was their passion. That was their motivation. Uh, and, and Jesus said, go into your inner room and, and close the door. Shut yourself off from distraction. We need, we need a discipline like that. Now, uh, you may know that my emphasis, the other book, <laughs> is about God's grace. And so we're not praying to impress God. We're not praying to show how religious we are. We're not praying to earn merit. Far from it. Far from it. Jesus has given me massive merit. I have his righteousness. You can't beat that. He's sanctified me forever. He's perfected us for all time. Hallelujah. It's a finished work. Celebrate the wonder of it. I don't pray to prove anything. But I pray because Jesus taught me. Jesus modeled it. and said, now shut the door and get along with your father. Did you do that? Is there a discipline in our lives? You see, the difference between discipline and legalism. Legalism is in order to gain merit. Discipline is a fruit of the Spirit. Something to help you grow. And so you have to learn to find that. One of the things that shocked me when I went to Bible college at first, in my very first year at Bible college, and guys had to share rooms and so on. And, and by the end of the very first term at college, guys were saying, oh, I lost the Lord. Well, these are guys who put down secular work in order to train to serve God. And within one term, they'd lost it. What happened? Well, we shared a room. It was difficult. We talked late at night. And at the very beginning of each term, I would find my roommate's program, his timetable for the term. I'd get my timetable. I'd put them together. I'd say, right, he's got a lecture then. I haven't. He's got a lecture then. I haven't. Right. And I'd look through it. Ah, the room is free then, 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 and then. I made sure. I want to be alone with God because I want to cultivate a relationship with Him. And Jesus said, shut the door, get alone. And He said this amazing thing, with your Father. That's revolutionary. Jesus was revolutionary. You're with your Father. Get with your Father who knows what you need and who sees you in secret. It's incredible. Now shut the door. Now, if you're anything like me, you know, shutting the door doesn't do it, does it? Because your brain goes through the door. Have you noticed that? <laughs> you know, the window anywhere. I'm praying and my brain goes, woo, here we go. Off, my mind's going all over the place. I shut the door, didn't do me any good at all. So, so I've always got a piece of paper there so that if some silly thought comes, oh, I haven't done, just quickly write it down. Right, leave it, on we go. And I, I just keep that there. It's always there. So when I'm praying, right, I'm not going to, it's like shutting the door. Okay, I'll deal with that later. Just note it. It's like, I'm not going to get distracted. I want to be with my Father. I'm going to be with Him. And we call upon Him as Father. It's a wonderful privilege. It says back in Genesis 4, 26, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's the first reference to prayer in the Bible. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, Ed Clowney, a wonderful speaker and writer, he says, in the USA, the slang for a name is a handle. What's your handle? And he says that God gave you a name. He gave you a handle to get hold of. When he revealed himself. You see, we know God because he gave us his name. I'm the Lord that sees you. I'm the Lord that provides. I'm the Lord your banner. And every time God tells us who he is, he's giving us a handle to get hold of. He's giving us a revelation of what he's like. He's helping us draw near to him 
in line with how he's made himself known. So prayer begins to take on meaning, not that we're whistling in the dark, but because, hey, that's who I am to you. And Jesus said this amazing thing, you can call him Father. That surpasses anything in the Old Testament. I can't imagine what it was like for Mary and Joseph when they were in the home. And I guess, you know, you think of homes in those days. I guess it was, how do you find space in those homes? Little places. And they must have overheard him sometimes. He's saying, Abba. What is this? He's praying to God? Father? And then Jesus says to us, come to him as your father. It's a huge privilege. I've loved the songs that we've sung this morning. I've loved the feel of them, the sense of presence, access, draw near, get a glimpse. Because he's saying, it's Father, we can come to Father. It's a massive, massive privilege. It's breathtaking privilege that we can come to him as Father. And God makes himself known in all these different names, but we're permitted to call him Father. We come to him as Father. Come and be with him. Come and withdraw to be with our Father. That's the first thing we see about Elijah. He withdrew to be alone. Jesus did it. He encourages us to do it. Can I just ask you, where is it you do it? Does your wife know where that is, that you do that? Do your kids know? Oh, well, dads, you know, he's there. The people in your home know about that, the place you go. Get to your room, shut the door. There should be a place where we get used to being alone with God. And then it says this, God said to him, I will send rain on the earth. I'm going to do it. I know for myself, I, I was, I guess, very helped in my early Christian life by being drawn close to real praying men. It really affected me. And then later I came to, I read A.W. Pink's Sovereignty of God. Completely blew me away. I thought, oh, God is sovereign. I'd never kind of seen it so clearly and explicitly before. My, my pastor was a lovely man, but he wasn't a very theological man. And I suddenly thought, wow, he's sovereign. And it destroyed my prayer life overnight. It's <laughs> like, so, oh, God's got it all sorted then. And I had to really get to grips with that and really find my way through that and really say, no, no, because before it was all down to me and if you pray enough and so on. And I suddenly thought, no, no, God is sovereign. And here God has said to Elijah, I'm going to send rain. Elijah could have said, well, thanks then. I'll say, well, we'll off we go then. You're going to do it. But when God said, I'm going to do it, instead of turning him off, it turned him on. When God said, I will do it, somehow, actually, that motivated Elijah to ask for the rain. He didn't feel, oh, that's the end of the story. God's going to do it. Somehow, it just stoked his heart, motivated him to get hold of God. God said, I'm going to send rain. And the sky is blue. And it hasn't rained for three years and there's drought everywhere, and there's no evidence of it. God says, I'm going to send rain, and that stirred him to ask. It provoked him to make requests, and you'll find that again and again. It says in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. You think, wow, great, that's God's plan, that's great. Then the next verse says, then you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found. So the promise is, you, there comes, yeah, now come ask me for that then. I've said that's what I intend doing. Now ask me for it. Come before me. Seek my face for it. You'll find that when God uh, begins to speak to Daniel, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, 
and he's a really good prophet in that he's in the word, he knows the revelation of God, but he's a, man of, he's, a, he's a man who's really in the secular world, he understands life, he knows dates and things, and he says, hey, wait a minute, the 70 years are up. And, and God said, after 70 years, you'll be free. So he didn't go running out on the street, hey, the 70 years are up. It doesn't say that. He said he set himself to seek God. Because God promised 70 years. So he's laboring before God and he prays and fasts and seeks God. And then he gets this wonderful answer from heaven. It's an old man greatly beloved. Ever since you set yourself to seek me, I've heard you. And it all starts to happen. And the whole Ezra, Nehemiah, the restoration of the land starts to kick into place. This man, he's motivated by God's sovereignty. It doesn't kill his prayer life. It makes it come alive. Even we get the promise in Psalm 2, the father speaking to the son, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask me. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. There's even, even to the son, the whole laying down of his life is that he might have such an inheritance. He paid that price for the joy set before him, but he's still invited. Now ask me. Come and ask me for this. And so even the Lord Jesus is welcomed into that. Philip Hughes says in his commentary, prayer is stressed over and over again in the New Testament as a vital prerequisite for the release and experience of God's power. A vital prerequisite. Here's the promise. Now come and ask me for it. And prayer is that vital prerequisite. Andrew Murray says this, it's as though the promises are waiting for prayer for their fulfillment. We may and must most confidently expect an answer to prayer. See, sometimes people say, well, prayer, it's just something like, you know, you're getting rid of inattentions. You pray just to make yourself feel better. You pray just to get the load off your back. Now, Jesus didn't tend to speak in those terms. He says, ask that you may receive, that your joy may be full. It's far more pragmatic. Ask in order to get. Or ask, everyone who asks receives. Everyone seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be open. Jesus is inviting us to engage with God in expectation that he will answer. It's not just being religious. It's releasing his power. And I find faith when I reckon on what God has said, God says, John, John 15, 16, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and bring forth fruit. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, I'll give it to you. So I come to God in prayer. I say, Lord, you chose me to ask. <laughs> I'm a God-appointed asker. You didn't, I didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to ask. So we've got terrific authority when we are. We're appointed by God to ask. So God wants us to do it. We're we are handpicked, appointed, chosen. Now ask, and you'll get fruit, and it'll bring glory to God. So this is God's word repeatedly and plainly. You find that the Apostle Paul, and I haven't got all the quotes so I could scatter out. He writes again and again. One thing you find him constantly saying, I'm praying for you. Every epistle, again, again, I'm praying for you, praying for you. Day and night, I'm praying for you. And then he says to them, pray for me, pray for me. Pray that I might have a door open. Pray that I might speak boldly. Pray for this, pray for this. D.A. Carson says this, Paul counted on their prayers 
on the prayers of the churches to gain for him what might otherwise not be given. To gain for him what might otherwise not be given. I read that out to our church at home before I left. I said, pray for me, I'm going. I want you to partner with me. I want you to gain for me what otherwise I might not be given. That's what Paul is saying, pray for us, pray for us. I love the story of J.O. Fraser, who was a great missionary pioneer in Lisuland. I recommend his story probably above every other testimony I know of. And he would write letters home, now pray for this, pray for this, pray for this. And he says things like this, we may not understand prayer, but the Bible says so clearly there's such power released there. And then he says this, I want to be like a businessman who knows one thing that really goes well. And I'm going to give my best energies to it. Because this is what really works. And so he says, in prayer, I'll give my best energies. And, and we're all made a bit different, aren't we? So some of us come alive in the evening. Some of us are early morning people. You know when your best energies are. We're all kind of different. Some of us in the evening, we're kind of, we're off, you know, praying now. Oh, you know. Uh, others of us, you're in the morning, you must be joking. No, you know, uh, J.O. Fraser says this, know yourself. When are you most alive? Then give your best energies. Now for me, it would be in the morning now. Used not to be, just now. <laughs> so give, I want to give my best energies to this incredible, powerful weapon. Incredible, and he says a pragmatic thing. It's not religious. It's not religious. He saw thousands come to Christ. And he said, he wrote to the people at home, you pray. It doesn't matter whether you're there or here. You pray, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. He wrote these inspiring letters. You can read books where you see his letters. Pray for us. So you find that he asks, and notice this, Elijah asks specifically. He says to God, doesn't say, Lord, catch the attention of this nation. Look how it's drifting, Lord. He says, stop the rain. He asked a specific thing. And, and, and why did he ask for that? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, you look at Deuteronomy, and you find all these wonderful blessings. God says, I'll bless you in the field. I'll bless you in the home. I'll bless you in the family. I'll bless, I'll bless you. I'll bless you. But if you go after other gods, I'll close the heavens. I'll stop the rain. There it is. He's got a verse. You go after other gods, I'll stop the rain. Well, this, this people of God, this nation of Israel, was supposed to be a light to the nations. And only 58 years earlier was enjoying Solomon's phenomenal, magnificent demonstration of the kingdom of God. 58 years. 58 years in a lifetime. Some seven different kings have come and gone, and now it's illegal to worship Yahweh. Now the national God is Baal. I mean, the devastation. I've seen something like that in the UK. Devastation. Turning against Christianity. Turning against. And now it's so radically changed. And God said to Elijah, or said to the people of God in Deuteronomy, if you go after another God, I'll stop the rain. So when Elijah prayed, Lord, stop the rain, he's got God's promise. That's what he's going to do. He's praying in line with the promises. He's praying according to Revelation. And then God says to him, now go and say to Ahab, the rain's coming. 
So he goes and tells Ahab, the rain's coming, and then he prays. He doesn't say, oh, the rain's coming. Well, see you later. He goes away to seek God, to pray for it, because he's in communion with God. He's, he's laying hold of God. God said, I'll do it. Right, let's see you do it, Lord. And he prays specifically. He prays particularly. Jesus said a parable. He said, a friend came at midnight. He said, give me three, is it two loaves or three loaves? I can't remember. Two or three loaves. <laughs> it's very specific. It doesn't say, give me some food. Let's say it's two. Give me two loaves. <laughs> Forget, sorry, I forgot the detail. Okay, thank you. Give me two loaves. It's like, that's, I'm asking for two loaves. I'm, it's not like, would, have you got any food? Give me two loaves. When someone came to Jesus and they're sick, he said, what would you have me do for you? Well, isn't it obvious? No, what do you want me to do? Tell me what you want me to do. So specific. I read uh, Yonggi Cho's book, Prayer, the Key to Revival, one of the most stimulating books on prayer I've read. And he says he learned, he was praying generally, generally, and God said, ask me specifically. So he began to pray specifically. He said, Lord, I'd love a mahogany desk. He was, was working in a tent at the time, had hardly anything. He said, I'd like a mahogany desk. I'd like a chair for the desk with wheels on it, you know, that you can move around. And he said, I'd like a bicycle so I can go and visit my members. And he asked God, please give me these things. And in a very short time, a, a, an American missionary was going, gave him his mahogany table and the chair with the wheels. And somebody else didn't need their bike and passed their bike. I got all three of them. Woohoo, I got them. And, and it's like, I, I asked specifically. When I first left work, I was living by faith for two years. And sometimes the flow of finance came. I had no one who promised they'd supply. The occasional gifts would come. You never knew whether when. I had no guaranteed income. I was like the Muppets. I lived with no visible means of support. But it was amazing. And that, but some, I came to a time when it was really getting tight. I thought, God, please, I'm not. And I felt, I felt God said to me, ask me for the number of verses that are in Psalm. I mean, do you know, I can't remember what the Psalm was. Uh, it wasn't 119, sadly. But the number of verses, ask for that number of pounds. Ask me for it. And I said, Lord, please give me. And I quickly looked up. Whoa, that many. Right. Lord, please give me. And within a week, from three different sources, I got precisely that came through. Exactly what I'd asked for. And, and to me, honest, beloved, the sense of, wow, you know me, Lord. You know my scene. You know, it's just so exciting that we're, we're engaging with God who's answering prayer. We're invited into something where we relate with him, we fellowship with him. When we first started the church in Brighton, where I've been, we were meeting in a schoolroom. We needed a building. And, and there was a, a, a kind of almost redundant, fairly large mission hall in town. And I knew there was a small congregation and a big building. And I said to the other guys, there were three of us leading the church at that time, although we were still quite small, I said, let's pray for it. I believe God would have us have that building. And it was one of those times, and I wish they were more frequent, but the three of us were saying, Lord, give us that, give us that, give us that. And we suddenly, all three knew, we've got it. We've got it, it's done. We just knew it. And we kind of laughed and said, hey, we've got it. And then I thought, wow, I wonder how, well, how do we get it now? <laughs> and, 
And within a very short space of time, I had a phone call from the pastor. I said, hello, I heard about your growing church in the school. Can I come and meet you? I thought, great, come have a meal. And I thought, how do I get around to talking about his building? And he just suddenly came on to me and said, I've heard your church is growing. Really, we can't fill this place. Would you be interested to come in? I mean, it was breathtaking. It was so wonderful. It was so exciting to pray specifically and get answers specifically. And the church knew. We knew God's with us. God's doing stuff. It's inspired us as we gathered as a whole church. So praying in the will of God, coming before him. Next, he prayed fervently. That's what it says about him. He prayed fervently. He prayed. In James 5, he prayed with great, great power. It has great power in its working. Uh, Alec Mateer, in his commentary on uh, James, where he quotes this, he says, there is inherent strength, potency, power waiting to be released. Elijah's prayer carried a mighty punch. That's what Mateer says. His prayer carried a mighty punch. He prayed fervently. He had impact. He had accomplished. The Greek literally says, in prayer he prayed. Don Carson says, pray yourself into prayer. Now, we all know that prayer can be difficult. You know, that's why Jesus said, all men, men should always pray and not give up. Because what's the easiest thing about prayer? <laughs> Giving up. Oh, I can't do this. You know, we, we give up and we think, oh, I'm useless at prayer. Uh, now, Jesus said men should always pray and women should always pray and not give up. So pray yourself into praying. That's what Carson's saying. It's a very helpful little statement. The Scripture talks about praying in the Spirit. And sometimes when you begin to pray, you don't feel the Spirit's energy at all. But as you pray yourself, as you give yourself, you can find as you pray suddenly, or maybe gradually, you find kind of another energy kicking in. And, and as you give yourself to it, you can almost think, you almost feel you're looking on. You almost feel, I didn't know I cared this much about this. Because you just feel, you just feel, yeah, I'm praying in the Spirit. I feel there's another, and, and I feel that's something, we'll come back to it later, we can do corporately, we pray in the Spirit together, the Spirit's leading us together, we're praying together. See, the church at prayer is a wonderful, exciting, thrilling thing. And so we come together and there's a dynamism in the meeting. We break through. We hear someone else's prayer and it's almost like a prophetic utterance. and stimulates and, and there's, a, there's like a, something buzzing around here. God is amongst us and we find ourselves praying in the Spirit. Now it also says praying with the Spirit, which I take to be praying with the gift of tongues. I think there was praying in the Spirit, which covers the whole thing. Then sometimes Paul says, I will pray with the understanding. I will pray with the Spirit. So there's sometimes praying in tongues, praying with the Spirit, praying in tongues. Yes, sometimes we may do that. And I certainly would do that. But it's hard to express faith in the same way because you don't quite know what you're praying. And so I find both of real worth. But here, there's an invitation to pray yourself into prayer. And you get things like this with Jacob when he, he says, you know, he begins to wrestle with God. And he says, I won't let go unless you bless me. Now that is amazing. Well, you really feel you're laying hold of God. And actually beyond Jacob, I find more thrilling the, the, the story of 
Moses, where it says in Exodus 32, the Lord spoke to Moses because Moses is there with God, and down in the valley, they've made a golden calf. They're rebelling against God. They're, they're just making a terrible mess. And, and, and the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. This people are an obstinate people. Your people, this people. Well, how does Moses handle that? He comes straight back to God and says, your people whom you brought out. And then God says to him, look, I'm going to wipe them all out, and Moses, will start again with you. You know, you can be like the new Abraham. They'll be the children of Moses. Okay, but and God's giving him this incredible plan, and Moses says, no, no, no. What will the heathen say? But you are not able to bring us into the land. You're not able. And he's arguing. Oh, it's wonderful. He's arguing with God. He's prevailing with God. And this is the thing that I stumbled on more recently. It says in verse 10 of Exodus 32, God says to him, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them. <laughs> Imagine that. Moses praying. God says, let me alone. Let me alone. I want to smash him. Oh, let me alone. It's like, Moses, let me alone. No, I won't. I won't let you alone. And he prevails. A man can hear God say to him, let me alone so I can do it. No, I'm not going to. Wow. What a privilege is this? What a privilege is this? That we can come to God and argue and plead and, and, and he said, no, no, don't do this, Lord. I appeal to you. And God hears him, goes with what Moses says. It's wonderful. P.T. Forsyth, great theologian, says this. Lose the importunity of prayer. Lose the real conflict of will and will. Lose the habit of wrestling and the hope of prevailing. Make it mere walking with God in friendly talk. And precious as that is, yet you tend to lose the reality of prayer at last. See, some people say, well, actually, I don't go into the door. I don't go into my room and shut the door. I talk to God all the time. And what Michael Eaton says, I hate it when people say, I live in an atmosphere of prayer. It's like, well, I just talk to God all the time. Now, actually, Forsyth is saying, precious as that is. So he's not knocking that. And I don't think we should knock it. When someone says, actually, when I walk down the road, I talk to God a lot. When I'm cooking, I talk to God a lot. When I'm driving the car, I talk. It's wonderful. He's saying, well, precious as that is. But he says, you lose, lose that conflict of will and will. Conf lose that wrestling with the hope of prevailing. You lose that. If that's gone, then you lose the heart of prayer. Oh, well, let's just talk to God all the time. Well, yeah, wonderful. I don't want to knock it. But there's something about prayer in the Bible Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed, and it shut the heavens. And he prayed again, and rain came. <laughs> and God's inviting us, beloved. This is a New Testament passage. He's writing to Christians saying, look, Elijah was a man just like us. We can do this. We can lay hold of God. We can press through to know him. It's important for us to see that. And then last of all, I think, he prayed with importunity, 
See, there's different kinds of prayer. Paul says in uh, Ephesians 6, he's praying with all kinds of prayer. There's the Nehemiah kind of prayer. Lord, pray. He says, he's facing his boss. And he says, I said to the boss, and I said to the Lord. You know, it's that kind of quick prayer. And, that, and there's other kinds of prayer. There's prayer where you say, well, I'm going give, to give myself to prayer. Maybe a prolonged season of prayer. When my wife first said to me, no, I'm not interested in you, I fasted and prayed for three days. <laughs> I had a little list. She was number one on the list. Lord, will you please solve this? Either get her out of my heart or get her out of my life. Do something. I, I got, it's a season of prayer. A season of prayer. Or it may be a, a Nehemiah prayer. There's all kinds of prayer. But he says praying at all times in the Spirit. And there are times when we give ourselves to particular prayer. And it says here, he looked seven times. He said to his young boy, his servant, go and look. And it's so easy to read that verse quickly. He said, go and look seven times. But that means he looked, he prayed, now go and look. And he looked and he came back and said, no, nothing. And he gave himself again. Prayed and prayed and prayed. Now look again. No, it's a Mediterranean sky. <laughs> prayed again. Have another look. No, not a cloud in the sky. Came back. Ah, oh, pray. He prayed. He prayed. He prayed. He prayed seven times. There's something about that importunity that God loves. There's something about sticking at it. Again, D.A. Carson says, we're like the naughty little boy who rings the bell and runs away. Jesus gave two parables and they're both really quite strange. One is the friend at midnight we referred to earlier. When he comes to a friend, says, someone's come to him and says, have you got? No, I haven't, but I know someone who has. And he bangs his door. Give me two loaves. Go away, I'm in bed. Give me two loaves. Be quiet. I'm my, oh, our family's asleep. Go away. Give me two loaves. Give me two loaves. Give me two loaves. Go away. Give me two loaves. And then Jesus says he doesn't give him because he's a friend. He gives him because of his shameless knocking. He won't, let, he won't let go. And then Jesus told this other parable of the unjust judge where the widow comes and says, give me justice. And the, the judge says, clear off. Go away. Push off. Give me justice. Give me justice. And she, she won't let him go. And in the end, the judge says, oh, for goodness sake, this woman's going to injure me. And the Greek says, it's like she's going to put a blow on my, she's going to bruise me. I better give it to her. And Jesus gave us those two parables. There's something about importunity that pleases God. It seems so strange. It sounds like God's reluctant, God's miserable, God's tight-fisted. Well, it doesn't say that anywhere. It says God's generous and kind and loving and ready to give. But there's something about prayer that God looks to us for insistence, pressing through. Jesus gave those parables. They come down out of heaven. They're for us to understand. Again, Andrew Murray, who I find so helpful on prayer. Oh, what a deep heavenly mystery this is of persevering prayer. The God who has promised, who longs, whose fixed purpose is to give the blessing, holds it back. He trains us in the school of answer delayed to find out how our perseverance really does prevail. 
what the mighty power is we can wield in heaven if we'll but set ourselves to do it. Isaiah, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion. Blessed are those who wait for him. Sometimes God's training and dealing with us. And then, if I can quote Yonggi Cho, he says this, In prayer, the Christian enters into the priestly function of providing an earthly base for God's heavenly interests. This age has become the battleground of two opposing forces, but God has a group in the foreign land that is able to bring the influence of the age to come into this age. The way that the world experiences the dominion of Christ on the present world is through the exercising of the church's authority, particularly in prayer. Now, if you think about that, you think about the story of the birth of the church. Go, all authority is given to me, Jesus said. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. I'm the enthroned king. I'm on David's throne. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus, God has exalted. He's on David's throne. <laughs> He's the Lord. They go out to preach, and then the authorities say, no, you can't. Stop now. Uh, well, who's, who's on the throne then? I thought Jesus said he was on the throne, but we're telling you stop now. So what happens? The church gives itself to prayer. And Yonggi Cho is saying here that, that, that God has a group in the foreign land able to bring the influence of the age to come into now. And they begin to pray. And they pray to God. And it says, the translations say, Oh, sovereign Lord. It's that the Greek word is despotis, the word from which we get our word despot. It's like, oh, you wonderful, holy despot. Show who's boss around here. That's what they effectively pray. Oh, sovereign. We jump above the Sanhedrin. We jump above these powerful guys. We come to you. Stretch forth your hand. Show who's really caught. And he's saying, hey, that's how it works. Paul Bilheimer's great book saying, destined for the throne. The church is learning to rule through prayer in this time zone. We're learning to establish authority of the kingdom through prayer. That's what God's preparing us for. Again, Andrew Murray says, Christ actually meant prayer to be the greatest power by which his church should do its work. The neglect of prayer is the great reason the church does not have great power. Beloved, we need to learn to pray. We need to derive help. Sometimes just going, you know, you may know another sister in the church. You may say, I find it so hard to pray. She's such a godly woman. Just say, can I pray with you? We've got Wednesday afternoons. I mean, could you make a slot? Can I pray with you? Take practical steps. Learn to pray with people in twos and threes. Sometimes people say, you know, when two or three are gathered, only two or three turned up. When two, he did say when two or three. I, I find two or three is fabulous. I love two or three. To me, it's one of the most dynamic prayer times. Just two or three. I love it. I love it. So our program in the Brighton Church, every Tuesday morning, all the staff, we're praying. Every Wednesday lunchtime, I used to gather one of the young guys. I'd walk down the corridor. You want to pray with me through lunch? Yeah. Right, let's pray. Two of us, we're going to pray through lunch. Thursday, all the pastors in the region used to pray. Friday morning, crack of dawn, elders used to pray. Saturday morning, church prayer meeting. 
The week was absolutely swamped in prayer. I was impacted when I read about Jim Simbala, Simbala from Brooklyn, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. If you've read his book about prayer, I love to read books on prayer to stimulate my faith. I was speaking at a church in Springfield, Missouri a month ago. It's a church of a hundred, it's a town of 130,000. They have a church, two buildings. They've got 8,300 in their church in a town of 130,000. I mean, it was impressive. I asked him about it. I said, he said, oh, we got Jim Simbala in. He talked about prayer. He said, we changed everything. We got our main meeting now is the prayer meeting. Wednesday night, every week we pray. What about your small groups? Oh, we fit that around here. And I thought, wow. And I've just read James McDonald's book, Vertical Church. That's a fantastic book on, on the church. If you're going to get that one or his, get his. It's wonderful. It's tremendous. And he says, Jim Simbala came to them and inspired them to pray. He's got thousands and planting churches all over, harvest churches. The power of prayer. And uh, it's so important to hear. Jim Simbala says this, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer of our church. What happens on Tuesday night will be the gauge by which we will measure how God is blessing us. So, the Spirit-filled church. Look at the book of Acts. They prayed. And when they prayed, amazing things happened. We've got a heritage of that. We've got, we've got men like Elijah. We've got men like Moses. We've got Jesus. He said, oh, I'd love to be like Jesus. He prayed a lot. He prayed a lot. Piper says, many of us don't pray because we don't plan to pray. You have to plan to pray. You going to have a vacation this year? It usually happens because you plan it. We have to plan to pray. We have to say, well, that's when I'm going to be in my room. That's when we're going to gather as a church. That's when we're going to have a season of prayer. Or that's going to be a way. Prayer needs to be the pump of a spirit-filled church. It's the powerhouse. You look at the story of Cho's church and these other churches. It's not like it's a secret. They've given themselves to prayer. I want to encourage us. There's things we need to learn about prayer, praying together, learning how to handle that well. So we don't get one person prays a long prayer going all the way around the world where we wait for him. Then she goes all around the world, we wait for her. Now we need to be together in it. We need to be led into it. We need to be helped in it. How to follow the Spirit. We need to stay with a theme until we've prayed it through. We used to pray, Lord, give us, we needed 20,000 to do this building up. We pray, let's, let's all pray. And then we learn from the, the Koreans. Let's all lift our voices together. Pray, let's pray. And then some of us lead. And then we pray and pray. And I'd say, do we feel we've got it yet? Mm, now let's pray on then. Let's pray on. And sometimes you find faith growing in your heart. As the meeting's happening, dynamic things happening. Leaders leading the people to, to, to faith. Do we have it yet? Yeah, I think we've got it. We saw that again and again. As we had to raise finance to do up a building, buy another building. And, and, and if there was a rich person in our church, I never met them. But in the mercy of God, we raised literally millions, millions of pounds, which we thought was way out of our league, but we learned to pray. And I want to encourage you to be praying in the Spirit, in all kinds of prayer. It's one of the marks 
of a spirit-filled church. It's the Holy Spirit energizes us, motivates us, encourages us, and brings us through.